afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 27th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I'm very pleased to let you know that my guest is Kathleen Tierney, a leading interpreter of the role disasters play in society and the former director of the Natural Hazards Center. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter at US of Disaster. And you can hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID calls podcast. And again, on Twitter, I'm at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and for topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself. Tomorrow, my guest is Kathy Bergen. Professor Bergen teaches law at Cornell Law School and is an expert in disaster law. Her focus extends to humanitarian aid programs and the catastrophic impact of climate change. I'll be very eager to get her perspective on the many legal implications, new ones apparently arising every day of the COVID-19 pandemic. As of today, there are 2,544,769 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 2,447,920 cases yesterday. 814,587 of those cases are in the United States up from 766,664 yesterday, and there are now a total of 43,796 deaths in the United States, up from 41,313 yesterday. I wanna reiterate that COVID Calls is uh, an open resource for educators. If you would like to partner with me to develop some programming and COVID Calls for your classes, please do reach out. And also, if you're working at an archive, museum, a library, or some other nonprofit organization that has some connection to the COVID-19 pandemic or to disasters, disaster history more generally, please get in touch and let's partner on a future COVID calls program. My guest today is sociologist of disaster Kathleen Tierney. Kathleen served as the director of the Natural Hazards Center from 2003 until 2016, and previously served as the director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. During her career, she studied a wide range of disasters, including earthquakes in the United States, Japan, and Haiti, major hurricanes such as Hugo, Andrew, and Hurricane Katrina, technological disasters, and the terror attacks of September 11. She is most recently the author of Disasters, A Sociological Approach, and also The Social Roots of Risk, which came out in 2014. She was the senior author of Facing the Unexpected, Emergency Preparedness and Response in the United States, and co-editor of Emergency Management Principles and Practice for Local Government. And that's just a very small sampling of her many publications. Tierney has also served as a member of the National Academy's Committee on Disaster Research in the Social Sciences, the Panel on Strategies and Methods for Climate-Related Decision Support, and the Panel on Informing Effective Decisions and Actions Related to Climate Change. I am just so pleased to have a chance to speak for an hour today with Kathleen Tierney. Kathleen, welcome to uh, COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott, and thank you for having me. So I'd like to remind everyone that you can get your questions in for Kathleen Tierney, and please get them in as soon as, as you want to. Don't wait till the end of the hour. You can get those in to the YouTube chat or you can send them to me directly via Twitter at US of Disaster. Well, Kathleen, I'd like to start the way I've been starting all of these programs and ask you how things are going where you are. You're in Boulder, right? I'm in Boulder where it's a beautiful day here and um, we're all hunkered down, like many of our listeners are hunkered down all over, all over the country, all over the world, but uh, things are going very well. Um, with social distancing, um, we are able to take walks with one another. I have a very close-knit neighborhood where I live, and sometimes we sit out in my neighbor's yard with our chairs and our glasses of wine about 10 feet apart, and our dogs, 
and uh, converse. You had mentioned to me that there's an 8 p.m. tradition there in Boulder, and I hadn't heard of this before. Can you tell me about it? Yes, there is. At 8 p.m. every night, we go outside and we howl. And uh, it sometimes turns out almost like a call and response. You know, like the people on the next street are howling, and so we're howling. And uh, that's, what, that's what we do. And it's, it's kind of widespread here in Colorado. I don't know hmm. if it's reached the East Coast yet. Your, your governor has endorsed this howling? He has. He, he thinks that it's a, um, a very good demonstration of solidarity, and he's all for it. That's amazing. I mean, one of the things we're going to have to document is the many different sort of ways people are finding solidarity and communication at these distances. Um, in the hospitals, I know here I've seen a couple of stories when one of the hospitals, every time a patient is taken off, is extubated, they, they put on, here comes the sun just to play it across oh, the hospital, you know. These fantastic. small things like that can really make a difference though for people in the middle of a disaster, can't they? Very positive collective action. We're seeing it all over. And uh, yes, it, it makes a real difference. So I wanted to, I was going back and looking through some of your publications and some of my favorite things. And I actually came back to an essay um, that you wrote in 2006 called The Red Pill. And I just want to read a little bit of it as a way to jump into our conversation today. It's so extraordinary. So this is something you wrote after Hurricane Katrina. And you said at that time, nothing has been done since 9-11 to make this nation safer. Indeed, the opposite is the case. Together with the debacle that is Iraq post-September 11 policies and plans have actually made the nation more vulnerable, both to natural disasters and future terrorist attacks. Those who are now in charge of preparing the nation in the face of disasters and terrorist attacks are ill-equipped to do so, both because they lack a fundamental understanding of what preparedness is, but most important because they frame the challenges um, in the wrong way. And I wonder, um, well, you say that they frame them uh, managing in ways that are completely inappropriate. Sorry, I got the last part wrong there, but just to, as a way to introduce this, I mean, that's 2006. It's 2020. How are you feeling now about what you wrote then? Would you edit that and update that in any way? Um, yes, I would update it to say that this is the worst crisis response debacle I've seen in my career uh, as a disaster researcher. Um, the wheels have fallen off and everything it seems that can go wrong is going wrong. There, there was such a massive failure of foresight and a massive failure of execution and failure, frankly, to follow all of the planning philosophies and all of the, the, the plans and the institutional arrangements that uh, this country has been working on in emergency management for 50 years. I mean, it's astounding. The incompetence is absolutely astounding. Is it a lack of knowledge in fundamental areas? We just don't know how to cope with disasters at this scale? What do you attribute it to? Um, I may be going out on a limb uh, by saying this, and it's possible that I may offend some people who are listening, but um, I think that there has been a tendency among our highest leadership to actually believe that they can generate a version of reality that suits them, that they can employ narrative and rhetoric to actually almost create an alternative reality or a set of alternative facts. And they believe this so strongly that even when they come up against the obdurate fact of a virus and a pandemic, they refuse to put down these tools that they have already developed where they think that they can shape um, reality, literally. That they can act as if this is not happening and what's happening is what they say it is. Have you seen something like that previously? 
Um, not to this extent. Mm -hmm. Not to this extent. I mean, we can hark back to George, George Bush and Katrina with his, you're doing a heck of a job, Brownie, and uh, acting like, you know, everything was okay. And then nobody, nobody could have expected the levees to fail, just like nobody could have expected them to attack us with planes. Uh, now, nobody could have ever expected that something like this would happen. Uh, it's, it's all very reminiscent of some of the things we've seen before, but in this case on steroids. We're a different society now, 15 years out from Katrina than we were then. We're a more polarized society. We're a society that um, where large numbers of people have contempt for expertise, they have contempt for science, they choose the media that they're going to um, consume and avoid fake media. And uh, this is all exacerbating the crisis that we're in. This alternative reality, the way you describe it, I had an opportunity yesterday, just as a sidebar, to speak with Robert J. Lifton. And I don't know if you remember oh, Lifton, a psychologist who is still working, wrote very important texts about survivors of Hiroshima and Auschwitz and was very much yeah. involved in the doctor's movement against nuclear weapons. And he was talking, it's fascinating, he said something very similar to what you just said, and he called it rejection. He said we've sort of entered the phase of, of rejection in which there are elites who literally find it inconvenient to acknowledge truths like climate change. And so they just merely reject them. It sounds like you're describing something very similar to that among the sort of elite you know, class who are making the decisions about disaster preparedness. Yes, indeed, indeed. Or we might call it a kind of a version of the cancel culture. Mm -hmm. But there's canceling. Cancel. Climate change is canceled, right? Yeah. Coronavirus canceled. But the inconvenient reality is that the pandemic cannot be canceled. The rest of us have to live with this reality, right? Yes, yes, we do. So. We do. And, uh, you know, I remember after Katrina, I think it was Shirley Laska that coined the term. Katrina is the mother of all Rorschachs. When we look into it, we see so much. We see class, we see poverty, we see gender, we see supply chains in the economy, we see politics, we see emergency management. Uh, it, it, this is a never-ending kaleidoscope of, of issues that this crisis is raising for us. That to me is a terrifying possibility, and I suppose I've been slow to come to your position that people can actually choose alternative realities in a moment like this when the, the truth is so manifestly obvious that you know 43,000 Americans and many, many more around the world have died. Well, people die of the flu, and people are going to die anyway, and people die in traffic accidents which by the way are not contagious. Right. But, but you see a lot of this narrative with these risk comparisons. You know, why, why should we care about this when so many people die in traffic accidents? Right. I saw that, uh, that was on one of the right wing talk show hosts put up yeah. a slide and he said the number of people who die in traffic accidents, cancer. Yes. Uh, now, my reaction to that, of course, was that, well, all those numbers are too high. And if we actually cared about public health in America, we would, we would call those a disaster every single day and attack those. But. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if uh, Joe American over here uh, dies in a traffic accident, he doesn't cause me to die. Or he doesn't cause... Um, you know, deaths in traffic accidents to multiply. Right, right. So there's something distinctive about the pandemic that, I mean, it truly doesn't lend itself to a libertarian sort of notion of, of individual responsibility. Well, you know, I think, I think the libertarians could find a lot to, um, lot to talk about. 
in the course of this pandemic because we do see people taking individual responsibility. I had to go to Whole Foods yesterday and every single person that I saw was wearing a mask. Everybody was practicing social distancing. There was no overarching authority telling them to do that. Uh, they were doing it um, out of, the libertarians probably wouldn't like this, but out of civic mindedness, out of care for others. Um, and it's the same kind of altruistic response we see in disasters more generally. I have to keep reminding myself of that. I think that is a really good insight that in fact, most people, even um, across the ideological divide are still favoring the sheltering behaviors or whatever their governor has asked them to do. Yes, and they're, they're assuming responsibility not only for their own health, but the health of their loved ones and their neighbors. And uh, I think this is a very powerful impulse. And I don't think, I don't think that um, the governor, for example, of Georgia is going to change too many people's minds about what they ought to be doing. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the one of the key findings that I hear repeated a lot. So I think some of the disaster research has made its way thoroughly into the culture, but one of them is around the sort of pro-social, what we call pro-social response that in disaster, it's not usually the case that it turns into um, you know, total social chaos and mayhem, people do help. But that's a little bit, that statement is pretty broad. And, and we do see people at state houses with, um, you know, automatic weapons. And there seems to be a lot of anger in the land. Sometimes it's hard to tell how much of that is the, the megaphone of certain news organizations and how much of it is real. Can you walk me through a little of your thinking about it? Because you did a lot of this research as well yourself, like how we understand the pro-social response, but also what the limits are? Um, there, there's been a lot of uh, good writing about this. Um, I know you're familiar and probably our listeners are familiar with Rebecca Solnit, who wrote uh, the book, A Paradise Built in Hell. And she has an essay, uh, a couple of essays, talking about what we've learned from disaster research that applies to, uh, uh, to this pandemic. Um, I, think that, I think that we are seeing such an incredible outpouring of pro-social behavior and positive collective action right now that, um, that we should be very encouraged. But just as all disasters have a political element to them, this pandemic is being politicized in some really counterproductive ways. And again, it's a reflection of the pre-existing polarization in our society that's carrying over even to a crisis like this one, where, um, where we see protests at certain state houses where there are largely democratic um, governors and where we see the president sort of siding with the protests and where you see people showing up at these protests uh, with, with uh, semi-automatic weapons, with rifles, as if somehow um, they, they fear that the next thing that's going to happen is that the government is going to take away their guns. In other words, this is just a continuation of the struggles that have been taking place um, in this society. And it's happening now, which is so unfortunate. So do you think then that the time element here is what I'm sort of interested in? You know, if we if we think about the pro-social response in a hurricane or wildfire, and those disasters have a long recovery period, but the actual event is relatively brief. This is a this pandemic is a is a slow process. You think then that the sort of pro-social attitudes will unravel a bit as we as we go? As you said, people are still staying home. They seem to be following instructions. They're caring. Yeah, I don't. I really don't think that um, mm. that the pro-social response is going to decline in any measurable way. I think that people get it, and I think that 
I think that we can count on people to be very solid, to be helpful, to follow guidance, to, um, to help one another, uh, to continue to howl at 8 p.m. Right. or whatever it is that people do. But uh, just like we see conflicts emerging in the recovery period after disasters, we're seeing conflict beginning to emerge uh, over um, the potential for economic damage. And uh, this is real. It's real and it's not something to sneeze at. Uh, people are in really, really bad condition. Many people are. And again, this, like disasters, reveals the divide that there is between, say, the upper 1% or the upper 5% and the rest of the people in our society who are suffering disproportionately. So concern about the economy is real. But my sense, and this is my, my private view, is that there are many leaders around the country who are trying to show their loyalty to the commander in chief by saying that they're going to open facilities like um, hairdressing studios and bowling alleys and tattoo parlors um, who are not acting out of a, out of a sense of, of how to manage the risk but are trying to demonstrate loyalty. I wanted to ask you about that because I know, you know, so much of the command and control kind of civil defense planning was very much in this military model that uh, the commander in chief would call the shot and somehow across the land, every, every, every citizen, a soldier would, would fall in line. Is that what, are we seeing some vestiges of that now with some of these governors falling in line with Trump? Are we into it? That doesn't, that analogy doesn't hold here. Well, yes and no. You know, I do think I do think that that many of these leaders are looking for for a favorable. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. I should have turned off my phone. Sorry, folks. Now we're um, that that they are, you know, trying to trying to get a favorable maybe tweet from the president, that all important favorable tweet, and to avoid negative tweets. Um, but they're doing this under the guise of individual freedom, mm -hmm. under the guise of don't violate our civil liberties. That's very that's very interesting. And I think I think another irony moving on like from command and control to, to talking about the way that we've been planning for disasters here in this country. You know, for at least 35 years, there has been planning for catastrophic disasters. Um, this originally started with thinking about what a major earthquake on, uh, say on the San Andreas Fault in California, what that would be like. It would be an event with a regional impact and, and it would be catastrophic. So, you know, if you look at the current national response framework, there is a catastrophic incident annex. Anybody can look at it, it's online. And, and what you see there is, is a sort of philosophy or a concept of operations that says that in some catastrophic circumstances, the federal government needs to play a bigger role, particularly in the provision of material, supplies, uh, devices that are needed, and so on. So, so it envisions a situation where uh, there is a catastrophic event that affects either a region or the entire country. You know, and it used to be that 
you know, back in the day, people used to talk about um, nuclear war. Right. So here we have a situation where we have federal disaster declarations in 50 states and where you would think that something like the catastrophic annex would be looked at mm -hmm. and followed where, yes, the federal government has to get out in front of this because no one state or no one region can do it by themselves. And instead, what you see is the exact opposite. So my question is, what was all this planning about all these decades? <laughs> right. I mean, I have the same I have the same question. And I know, I mean, you've spent a lot of time working with FEMA over yeah. the years, right? I mean, they want to plan. My, I mean, I, you know, the folks I've talked to in FEMA are, um, it's not like they sat around and said, let's work as hard as we can to have plans that don't get us where we need to be in the moment of crisis. I mean, they're dedicated to carrying out a mission, but somehow the plans either were not up to what this reality is, or they didn't have political buy-in somehow? I mean, can you be forensic about this? I know we're early days in this, but when you see such a variation between the plan and the response, we have to really be critical and analytical. I think September 11 obviously was a kind of similar, it was a national disaster. It manifested in a few places, but it had, was national in scope. Yes, yes it was. And, uh... I would be one of the people really calling and urging for there to be some sort of an investigation after all this passes or when we're in a position to really begin to look at it, to, to begin to identify what exactly happened there. The Department of Homeland Security the Secretary of Homeland Security is supposed to play a major role in a catastrophic incident like this one. Yeah. Uh, I haven't heard too much about the Department of Homeland Security and not much about FEMA. Um, it'll be very interesting to look into it and uh, I hope we have the opportunity to do that. You were, um, you testified before Congress, right? I mean, after, and I can't recall now if it was after September 11 or Katrina or both, perhaps. Um, it, actually, I've testified a couple of times, but yes, after Katrina, I did. So yeah. you participated in this process of investigation. I mean, the yes. sort of broadly yes. defined. Did you feel there was uptake? in some way of the ideas that you put forward was, is, you know, cause a lot of people are asking this thing about the investigation, but there's always this hesitance, which I feel as well, that sometimes that also is just kind of performing investigation rather than yeah. really doing investigation. What was yes. your sense of it when you did it? Um, well, I think that, I think that it's always valuable to, to do that and if a person is asked to go and provide testimony they should um, your written testimony goes into the congressional record maybe it doesn't have an impact right away possibly it could but maybe it doesn't but it, it is there for the record and I, I think it's a really important thing to do the um, just coming back to that moment um, and I read that quote of yours from that essay in 2006. So in those days, the Department of Homeland Security was just a couple of years old. Yeah. What's your assessment now as the department has grown and as FEMA has changed over these years? I mean, sort of staying with this theme of um, either failure to prepare, failure to plan, or failure to act out the plan. What's your sense of it? Do we just have the wrong disaster bureaucracy in this country? Where, where do we need to sharpen it? Well, FEMA is now, as you know, a very small unit in a very, very large federal bureaucracy. And um, that, was, that was one of the things that was lamented after Katrina, that, that FEMA's role 
or FEMA's sort of position within the Department of Homeland Security was so small. And, you know, if you think about, if you think, for example, about the current administration, what are they going to be worried about, right? Customs and Border Patrol, immigration, those sorts of things. That's where the emphasis is. We also know that, you know, there, there are vacancies in high-ranking positions in many, many different departments, and many people are in acting positions. D does this equip us well to be able to respond to a national emergency? I don't think so. You think it reflects um, the sort of mood of privatization that, that a lot of emergency management should just, and this has been rhetoric around for a long time, but it seems it's been louder in recent years that, oh, we can do it more efficiently, private firms can do it more efficiently or just leave it to states and localities. I mean, is that what we're seeing here or? Well, uh, it kind of it, it looks that way. I, I think that, um, that you see sort of this coming out just in the response itself, right? Let's have all 50 states and their governors um, getting into bidding wars with other governors and let the private sector, let the private sector do it. Although implementation of the Defense Production Act hasn't gone too well either, but yes. And um, I also think that this crisis this terrible crisis is being used um, as a cover to get a lot of other things done. Like, how about we privatize the Postal Service? Right. I mean, how about right. if we relax environmental regulations? How about, you know, how about just getting it under the radar a little bit while people are sort of looking the other way? Like nothing to see here, but um, we'd like to get rid of the post office as quickly as possible. Last night at 10.22 p.m., the president tweeted that he was gonna sign an executive order. I'm not sure if he's done it today, um, just to stop immigration into the United States. Yes, yeah, yeah. You, well, tell, you, you anticipated this. You told me last week you thought that that would happen. Something that's like right. that. That's right. I mean, Stephen Miller is working very hard and again, you can you can get a lot of things. In this case, it's you know under the guise of coronavirus that we have to stop immigration. Actually, some people have pointed out that immigration has essentially gr ground to a halt anyway. And I think he's at least relaxed it to where he's going to allow agricultural workers to come in, which is very nice for for farming and agriculture because. We need those supply chains, but but in any event, yes, you can get a lot done under the radar in a crisis. The argument I've heard come from the other side is that the left waits until there's a disaster and they jump into that moment to increase uh, the social safety net. They add to the tax burden of Americans. In this case, it'll be the the social welfare burden around health care. So. I mean, if that's how we view it, then somehow the disaster drops out and it just becomes a stage in which we enact and fight our old usual policy wars, right? I mean, I worry about that framing of this because then what about the disaster itself and the people who are suffering from that? They don't want to argue about Medicare for all. They want to breathe. Yes, yes. Well, you, you know, people will say that the left is taking this opportunity to push um, socialism, but um, somehow, somehow I think that all those out of work people and those, those businesses that are losing money, they would like a little taste of socialism right now. Right. 
I want to remind people. Also, also yeah. known as our money going to our right. population in need. In need, absolutely. I want to remind people that I'm speaking with Kathleen Tierney on COVID calls. And please go ahead and get your questions in to YouTube chat, or you can send them by way of Twitter and just tag me at US of disaster. And I think it's fair to say when talking with someone like Kathleen Tierney, you can ask about anything having to do with disaster because there's almost no topic she hasn't thought about deeply or written about. And now I wanna, um, Kathleen, I wanna pivot to um, just another area of your work and I'll start very broadly, but you wrote this book, um, which in some ways I think synthesized so much of your earlier work and it was called The Social Roots of Risk. And you talked about disaster really as a revelatory process of, of social, ills and fractures in, in America. Can you just give us some of the key findings from that book when we begin to think of disasters as society under stress? A lot of times that's, it's a gestalt switch for people who think about disaster in, in some other way as an event to putting out a fire or whatever. What does it mean to think about the roots of a disaster in the society before the disaster occurs? Well, the point was that the losses and disruption that come about as a result of physical events, or in this case, uh, a virus, uh, that those losses and those disruptions have their roots in the social order itself. That um, we can learn a lot about disaster victimization by studying the societies in which these physical events occur. And wow, are we ever seeing this now, where everybody has been talking for so long about the structural issues in our society, the tremendous inequality, the rise of precarity and the gig economy, the people who were living from paycheck to paycheck while the upper middle class and upper class are getting more and more wealthy all the time, where real income is stagnant for many people in our society. And so, of course, when something like this pandemic happens, this is all revealed, right? Our homeless population suddenly is being looked at through the lens of this pandemic and we're beginning to realize we're beginning to realize what is going on with those people that are living paycheck to paycheck with and what does that mean that means when may 1st comes around shortly people won't be able to pay their rent we're looking at these long long lines at these food pantries and distribution centers. Why? Because, because our middle class and working class, I guess in disaster parlance, we could say they don't have the resources to be resilient. Mm. So the racial disparities the social class disparities that we see in this pandemic, this is, these are socially produced. The political upshot of that is jarring, I think. If we think of it, I and mean, it comes back to our earlier discussion that, uh, I mean, if I have you right, the best way to prepare for disaster is to actually be aware of underlying social vulnerabilities and go after them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, if we really cared about disaster losses as a society, we would do something to reduce those losses that has to do with people's ability to make a living, their ability to to um, be able to put aside resources and savings, uh, their access to um, home ownership. We would do a lot to reduce the inequities in our society if we really cared about those who are suffering. 
Well, in the United States, then maybe we don't care about those who are suffering. We care about economic losses. Um, yeah, maybe. We know, we know that our president uh, judges the well-being of our country uh, by uh, the stock market, by the Dow Jones average. That is not the real economy. That is not the reality of people in this country. Right. So there's supposed to be a, a check for that, which is called an election. I mean, if, if the planning for disaster continues to be year in and year out, so focused on the economy and the material, things that are destroyed in a disaster, but it, lay, it doesn't pay attention to these issues you're talking about, racial disparity, or homelessness, addiction, you would think that in a democracy, there's a, we can yell about that, and then there's a check on that. But it doesn't seem, we don't seem to be getting that kind of connection between social need and disaster planning that elections should provide to us. Do we? Oh, it requires a paradigm shift. Oh. And it requires people to, number one, prioritize uh, disaster vulnerability, and number two, understand where vulnerability really comes from. I want to connect that to um, an article that you wrote, co-authored, uh, in which you talked about, uh, you know, because you mentioned this paradigm shift, and, and so much of that, of course, has to do with language. That as we, narratives and, and language as ways to give people tools to envision what's really happening here. And you wrote in that piece about the danger of the war metaphor, of war as a way to think about what disaster is, and maybe even sports as a way to think about disaster. Have you seen that in this pandemic, or how, how are we doing with, with language and, and framing in this disaster? Well, our president calls himself a wartime president. Um, we hear that it's a war, that it's a battle. Uh, and again, what, one of the ironies of, of this pandemic is how gendered the response is. Women on the front lines, women as caregivers, women at home trying to homeschool their children. I'm not saying that men aren't involved, but, but this is a, this is a, a situation and a circumstance that calls for caring and nurturing and supporting, not fighting and battling, but uh, as Americans, you know, we have to think about things as a war, the war on drugs and the war on poverty and war, 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 which elevates masculinist um, values and militaristic values and identities. Um, but that is not what's happening. It's not what's happening. I would think that the care as a metaphor or learning as a metaphor, those are certainly as old as war in our society. But you're suggesting there's something gendered about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when I, when Christine Bevick and I wrote that piece called Disaster as War, we were talking about Katrina, mm -hmm. where uh, people were referring to going to help disaster victims as uh, going into a war zone. Right. You know, I just got back from Iraq and now I'm back in the war zone again. And uh, all of these sort of macho militaristic talk that came out of Katrina. And I think, I think maybe we're seeing less of that now, but uh, because I think that, that the majority of the people are recognizing that this is a, a time for caring, for nurturing, for supporting. Disaster. And research itself in the earlier days of the Disaster Research Center. I mean, you know, some of, I mean, they were being paid to 
do studies that would influence war preparation, right? I mean, I've been thinking about this also as, as our own research community evolves over time, how captive, and there I just use that language, what's the right metaphor to use, uh, but we have been held back perhaps even by the, not just the martial metaphor, but the martial funding stream too. Yes, although that was more evident in the beginning where mm -hmm. every report written about a disaster or a series of disasters had to have a concluding chapter called Implications for Nuclear War. Right. Do you think the disaster research community now has become sufficiently critical of martial metaphors and funding streams that might push it in that direction? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the, the emphasis, the growing emphasis on looking at vulnerable populations and their experiences is indicative of that. When was the inflection point for that? If you had to say, looking at your career, and you were one of the ones who caused that turn, um, can you, what are the disasters or periods in time in which people started to really say, wow, okay, we do have to pay attention to vulnerable populations here? Yes, I think that, I think that it really started with um, a series of disasters that struck in very um, urban areas that were very diverse racially and culturally, starting with the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. Then if you consider the Los Angeles riots of 1992, this was something that that was studied, the Northridge earthquake in 1994, um, where, where it, it became evident that uh, something was going on that was different from your ordinary Midwest flood event, where, where we were talking about large urban areas, where there were a range of groups and a range of experiences. And, you know, it was, it was actually in the late 80s that people started a little bit, people like Brenda Phillips, a little bit writing about homeless people in disasters. And uh, we began to look at um, cultural variation and linguistic variation and disability um, as, as important um, axes of uh, difference and inequality that we should, we should be looking at. And then certainly with Hurricane Andrew in 1992, I would say this was the origin of really talking about gender and disasters with the work of people like Elaine Anderson and Betty Morrow talking, uh, writing books like The Gendered Terrain of Disaster. And so, um, and then also then later on in sociology, there was the development of the intersectionality approach, which said, says it isn't race, it isn't class, it isn't gender, it's the intersection of those things that we have to pay attention to. And I think that came to the fore after Katrina where people really started taking an intersectional look. I think that's that to me that insight is so crucial particularly now because if you try to put your finger on what the what the pandemic event is it slips out of your hands it's so many intertwined things and of course it's impacting people differentially depending on their identities which are also as you say intersectional. Yes. There's a lot of strands to keep in in front of you there though as an analyst, right? I mean, these kinds of projects from a sociological point of view can get very complicated very quickly. But I, I, I find it interesting, some of the more recent discussions about the pandemic, like the question of, okay, men, why does mortality seem to be higher among men? African-Americans, what's going on there? Well, it turns out, it, it turns out that you know, there are some um, physical things like having, having, you know, so-called underlying conditions. Well, those underlying conditions are related to race and class. 
Um, then it also has to do with the kinds of occupations that these folks are in, where they're interacting with the public a lot, maybe they're in service industry, um, and so forth. So again, we begin to see the social roots of this vulnerability. That I think is, is I mean, one of the, to me, an important thing to just keep putting in front of policymakers that the, that the disaster itself will, will be just as complicated as the society that it, uh, you said, reveals. And I think that's totally right. It pulls the curtain back. And if we take our emphasis off of the disaster as some external unwanted thing that happened to us, but rather as an extended moment often in which these vulnerabilities are revealed, it completely just as you said in your essay, it's like taking the red pill, right? Suddenly you're in a yeah. different reality. Yeah, no, that's right, Scott. And um, it's, it's just like, like all disasters, this pandemic is revealing who we are as a society. You know, I, I also found it interesting that, um, that, you know, in these discussions about businesses and entities that are getting that are getting aid or paycheck protection or small business um you know aid that um there's a lot of discussion about people that don't have a relationship with a bank mm -hmm. the, the so-called unbanked population mm -hmm. and you know i talked about that in in um my book that came out last year because you know disaster loans post-disaster loans are tied to creditworthiness in this right. country right and so you have a lot of people who don't have a credit score um or they have bad credit or they don't they don't have much of a credit history and they're unbanked and 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 these are the sorts of people that are that are left out of this pandemic assistance as well. Since you mentioned the book, I want to make sure people know that's Kathleen Tierney's 2019 book, Disasters, A Sociological Approach. Please do get that work. Very relevant for this moment. And we have some time left. I want to make sure you know you can get a question in to the YouTube chat or you can um, send it by way of Twitter. I do have a question here, Kathleen from uh, Kim Fortune, and this takes us back into discussion um, connecting 9-11 again, and I think it's, it's good to go back to that discussion with you. She says, um, can you say how you see the response, let me, let me start again, can you say if you see or how you see the response to COVID-19 as in some ways a legacy effect of 9-11? Can you, can you draw some ligaments across that across that stretch of time well not uh 9-11 was very different uh from what we're talking about here but 9-11 also ushered in a period of time when the leadership of the country and the agencies were thinking about how they should prepare for all kinds of exotic terrorist attacks. And there was an emphasis at that time on uh, preparedness for bioterrorism. And there were, Johns Hopkins, for example, was very much involved in that, um, and other institutions. There was a public health component to it, mm -hmm. but the pendulum struck uh, swung way in the direction of preparedness for um, for terrorism, hmm. and then we had and then there was more rethinking of what we should be doing and the development of the so-called national response framework and all of that. The pendulum swinging back and forth all the time. So I think there is part of a legacy of 9/11. And that is this constant reorganization um, of the emergency management institutions and their emphases. Um, I kind of see this pandemic as more like Katrina in a lot of ways, where 
the ball is being dropped, the wheels are falling off, the, there is confusion between, you know, different levels in the federal system, there is conflict to some degree between those different levels in the federal system, looks a lot like Katrina. Why do you think that the, I talked with Andy Lakoff a bit about this, but I want to get your view on it. How, why didn't that bioterrorism focus after 9-11 result in better pandemic planning, better 50 state pandemic? I mean, weren't they thinking through the possibility of a 50 state anthrax attack or smallpox attack? Yeah, they were, uh, but memories are short. Hmm. Memories are short. and. Um, I think that there was a little bit of attention paid to the public health dimensions of uh, terrorism, you know, such as bioterrorism or anthrax attacks or, uh, and, uh, you know, agencies were asked to prepare for that and to communities were asked to prepare for different scenarios, but that only lasted for a while. And then Katrina came along attention was again diverted. And public health has never had a seat at the table that it needed to have in the emergency management um, uh, system. And if you look, for example, at programs that were established um, with a terrorism focus, like the urban areas security initiatives, most of that money went to fire departments and police departments. And not to public health. And that was for training and for computer systems and radios and things like that, not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah what was, what was uh, sarcastically referred to at the time as toys for boys. Toys Night for boys. Goggles, you know, command and control vehicles and all that sort of thing. Um, in fact, I was involved in a study where we looked at the different, we looked at some different cities and we did find that, um, you know, public health was really not a big player in these networks. One of the concepts that emerged also, not right after 9-11, but in sort of in that moment right around Katrina was resilience. And I remember a few years ago, I was preparing to uh, give a talk and, um, I was feeling a little bit grumpy about resilience, frankly. And uh, all I could find was article after article and study after study about all the different resilience frameworks and checklists and how great it was. And then I thought to myself, I should go see what Kathleen Tierney said about resilience. And uh, you took a different tack. And I wonder if you wouldn't talk about it a little bit here because that is a concept that's supposed to also have very much prepared us that even down to the local municipal level, people could do sort of resilience infused preparation with checklists and instruments that are meant to be used by practitioners to get ready for all, all hazards. That seems to have failed us here as well. Yes, um, I'd like to make a distinction between capital R resilience, which is the real resilience of members of our society or lack thereof, and small r resilience, which is an ideological concept. And what I was writing is this, this uh, rush to resilience discourse was very consistent with our neoliberal political economy. And that, um, you know, that the discourse tells us that, you know, if we get to be resilient, good things are gonna happen and bad things will be um, less common, but uh, it's up to us to do it. So the resilient subject is somebody that is in a position to, to adapt and to you know, go with the flow. And uh, the resilient subject is not a political subject, not a political actor. Mm. Real resilience um, comes from our social connections, our social relationships, our capacities and our capabilities. And it includes being political actors. Um, our problem in this society is, is 
the limitations that a neoliberal political economy has put on real resilience. If, if that makes any sense. It does, absolutely. But I, if you then, if I were to ask you, okay, so where do I put the research money to create this real resilience? Um, what more do we need to know to craft it? I mean, I have my own sense that it does not need to go into multivariate threat modeling. No offense to my colleagues in computer science who are doing amazing things with disasters and data right now. I don't mean it that way, but I do mean boys for toys for boys and boys with toys <laughs> um, is not so much about building along the lines you're describing. Capital what resilience, real resilience. How do we build it then? Well, I think, I think we know that social capital plays a big role. Um, I think that economic capital plays a big role. Uh, I really don't see how we can have truly resilient people, neighborhoods, and communities where, where people have so many pressing everyday needs that they can't think about how they're going to adapt to a, a shock or, or a pandemic. You know, where people, where people are hurting, resilience is lacking. And again, I think we have to go back and say, you know, the solution to building resilience to disasters doesn't come out of the emergency management community or the policy community, comes out of uh, something bigger where we are, we are enabling people to have the capacities and the capabilities to be adaptable. And that includes the capability to engage in collective action to better their circumstances. Let's see. Yeah. So I, I think I'm gonna leave that there for a second. I think people will wanna think with that because again, it, it comes back to your earlier observation that a paradigm shift, if we're really serious, about bringing down the impacts of disasters. It's gonna involve a complete rethink about we, how we frame the problem, what we spend money on to try to prepare, yeah. and then how we even measure the success, right? I mean, if the, if the success of this response is measured in the Dow, as you said earlier, some will value that as a metric, but I think, it, I don't see how that stands up over time as a, as a useful metric to successful disaster recovery. Let's think about the people that have coronavirus symptoms, but they can't go to the hospital because they don't know how they're going to pay for it. Or they, they don't want to get a test because they're not sure that the test is going to be free. Right. Wouldn't it just be better if people had access to health care that they need? That would go a long way to helping people be resilient, I think. So we're almost up on time. I want to ask you one more question also because I know there are a lot of um, scholars who are just entering the disaster research field now. Uh, and there's a lot of fear out there about what's going to happen to the academy, what's been happening with government funding for social science. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't be willing, as we sort of close out, to share maybe where you see this field going and even a bit of a, a sort of a call to action, if you feel it, um, yeah. for disaster researchers. Because that, as I think of you and your work, that's always been one of your great talents, I think, is to call people uh, to rally in moments like this. Can I ask you how you're feeling about that right now? Well, I don't... I. I think this is a very timely point in our history to want to get involved in disaster research. Uh, the opportunities are rich. Um, there is also hopefully an opportunity to influence uh, policy and funding in the direction of placing more emphasis on the social sciences and what they bring to the table. And I, I, I can't think of a more timely period. Look at, what, look at what is going on and look at all the social factors and social roots of this catastrophe that are being revealed. 
this is is the mother of all Rorschach tests. And I think that everybody can find, no matter who you are, you can find a piece of this problem to really take get a hold of and and work with. So I, I think I think that the demand for this kind of research is only going to increase, just as it did after Katrina. I want to remind people to join me tomorrow at 5 p.m. when I talk to Kathleen Bergen about disasters and law. And I want to thank Kathleen Tierney. I can't thank you enough for this time with you. It's, I've learned a lot as always. And, and um, these calls will be uh, archived on YouTube live as well as on the, on the podcast. And I'm sure people will be sharing this conversation in classes. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me. Take care. Bye, everybody.